Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. Later, we will conduct a question and answer session, and instructions will follow at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star then zero on your touchtone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. At this time, I would like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Messner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Thank you very much, Stephanie, and I, too, would like to welcome everyone to today's Cancer Connect workshop, Advances in the Treatment of Cervical Cancer. And this is a really important program. I have to say it's a workshop that we, uh, it's long overdue in our offering it to all of you, and there's lots to learn today. And today's is a collaborative effort between Cancer Care and many other cancer organizations. And because of that collaboration, we've been able to reach so many of you on the call today. Now, we have over 547 participants on the call, and you come from all of the United States, and we also have international participants from Canada, Egypt, Kenya, Micronesia, Nigeria, Puerto Rico, uh, Sri Lanka, uh, Tunisia, United Kingdom, and Venezuela. So this is clearly a global call, fairly from all over the world, and really it's very impressive that all of you are with us today. Today's program was made possible by Genentech, a member of the Roche Group, and the Rust Family Foundation. I really want to thank them for their support of the program today. I wanted to also remind all of you that you did receive materials from Cancer Care, and in those materials there is an evaluation. And I would ask you all to take a moment at the end of the program today and complete that evaluation form. When you think about it, you are the best people to tell us the programs and topics you would like us to offer going forward. And so we take your recommendations very seriously, and we are in the process of planning all of our programs for 2015, and so your recommendations could not be more timely. So tell us what you'd like us to do, and we'll try really hard to do it. Now, we have wonderful speakers today, and I want to begin by introducing our first speaker. And our first speaker is Dr. Carolyn Runowitz, and Dr. Runowitz is Executive Associate Dean for Academic Affairs, Professor of Obstetrics and Gynecology, Florida International University, Herbert Wertheim College of Medicine. Dr. Runowitz is going to address an overview of cervical cancer, diagnosing and staging, current standard of care, managing side effects and pain, and communicating with your healthcare team. It's my pleasure now to turn the program over to Dr. Runowitz. Thank you. It's my pleasure to be here again, and I agree that it's a very important and timely topic. Cancer of the uterine cervix is uncommon in the United States. It is not the most common gynecologic cancer, but it, what's important about it is that we've had an incredible understanding of the etiopathogenesis or the agent that is likely responsible for all of cervical cancer, and that is human papillomavirus. So in my uh, career as a physician, I have seen us go from we didn't have any clue as to the cause of cervical cancer to it might be herpes to a real understanding on a molecular basis that human papillomavirus is central to the development of cervical precancer and cancer. And many of you on the call may have been told that you have carcinoma in situ or severe dysplasia, and that is a very early form of in situ cancer. It's not an invasive cancer, but again, it's related to the human papillomavirus. However, I note that there are many um, participants uh, that are from other countries, and globally, cervical cancer accounts for more than 500,000 new cancer cases worldwide. And so, so in the world, it's a very important cause of cancer, whereas in the United States, because of a comprehensive screening program, 
we don't see the same problem that the rest of the world experiences. And Dr. Um, Einstein is going to talk a little bit about some of the prevention um, that we do here in the United States and that is becoming more global. And since we know the cause of cervical cancer, a vaccine was created and it's a, vaccine, a vaccination against human papillomavirus, the most common types that cause cancer. And I anticipate worldwide that we will, if a successful implementation occurs, we will see a dramatic decrease globally as well as in the United States. The mean age of diagnosis of cervical cancer um, in the United States is about 48 years. It takes a series of years to go from an, a pre-cancer to a cancer, and that's why screening has been so important and uh, has, has reduced the incidence of invasive cancer of, the, cancer of the cervix in this country. The risk factors are really what we call surrogate markers for HPV. So, for example, early onset of sexual activity would obviously increase your risk of exposure to HPV. Having multiple sexual partners, similar increased risk. History of other sexually transmitted infections and a history of other related uh, pre-cancers or cancers of the vulva, those are the lips of the vagina, um, and the vagina. The um, smoking is a very important risk factor for squamous cell um, cervical cancer. And so if you are a smoker or no smokers, there's a multitude of reasons of why we should stop smoking, um, but this is just another uh, reason. There's also been some work done on the genetics. Um, people know about the genetics of ovarian cancer, the genetics of breast cancer, the genetics of colon cancer, but the genetics of cervical cancer are less well-defined and there have been increasing investigations to identify genetic alterations that may make the woman more susceptible to HPV and to um, developing a cancer. That is an area of research and we don't really have any known um, families that we can test and detect a genetic mutation. But I predict that we'll understand that more as time goes on. The types of cancer that one can get in cervical cancer include squamous cell, which is the most common, a glandular type called an adenocarcinoma, and then rarely there are other types, but they're more unusual, such as small cell tumors. The, the root of spread of cervical cancer is what my mentor who trained me called geographic spread. And what was meant by that is that cervical cancer seems to move to the next surrounding structure. So it goes from the cervix to the vagina, to the tissue next to the vagina, to the lymph nodes. And it's really a geographic, and that's in contrast, say, to a biologic metastasis where it spreads to the lung or to the brain. And you see that with other cancers, but you don't see it with squamous cell of the uh, cervix. 
The disease is, once a woman develops symptoms and a diagnosis is made, the disease is clinically staged. And some of the symptoms that a woman may have are bleeding after intercourse, pain, uh, bleeding in between periods, very heavy periods. Um, and so the symptoms allow an early detection as opposed to some other cancers where there really are no early symptoms. The stage, as I said, is a clinical stage where an examination is performed and the physician or the healthcare provider will feel the cervix, the upper vagina, the tissue next to the upper vagina by doing a rectal vaginal examination. And that will be a clinical stage. In the United States, we augment that with other uh, testing, but it's not allowed in the staging. And, and what that means is if I do a CAT scan or a PET scan on a patient, I can use that for treatment purposes, but I can't use that to alter the stage. So if, for example, it showed a paraortic node, a lymph gland up by the aorta, I wouldn't be able to say that the patient has very advanced cancer in an advanced stage. I would have to go with the clinical stage. However, it makes a difference in the treatment and in the prognosis. The actual diagnosis, and I refer to the squamous and the adenocarcinoma and others, is made by a biopsy. There's an instrument that's used um, right in the office, and a biopsy is taken of the tumor, which is usually um, confined to the cervix. And it's either by the naked eye, you can see the tumor, or you use a magnification called a coposcope. And you biopsy, and the pathologist will tell us what kind of cancer it is. And then, as I just described, we do an exam with or without anesthesia to determine the clinical stage. And then we do these other tests to help us with um, the uh, correct treatment. And the treatments are dependent upon the stage. You want to see a GYN oncologist, and, and although I am a GYN oncologist and Dr. Einstein is a GYN oncologist, I don't say that to be self-serving, but we are trained in the radical surgical techniques um, that are needed, and we're also trained to know when it's better to use radiation rather than radical surgery or to combine chemotherapy and radiation. And so if a patient is seeing a, a gynecologist, they really want to get referred to a gynecologic oncologist so that they get the opportunity to learn about all of the treatment options that are available. And in today's innovative surgery, there are ways in which even though the woman has um, a cervical cancer, you can remove the cervix radically but leave the uterus and the ovaries and thus leave the ability to have more children. So it's very important that the woman, um, if she's particularly interested in preserving fertility, that she see a GYN oncologist um, and then if she's got advanced disease, it would be very important that a G1 oncologist be involved in case she needs what we call multimodality therapy, therapy with 
chemotherapy and radiation because the survival is better. And the choice of whether you get radiation or chemotherapy is usually a team management. Uh, one of the um, important concepts in cancer has been the treatment by a team. And a team includes the gynecological oncologist, a radiation um, oncologist, um, sometimes a medical oncologist, a, a social worker, uh, nurses, nurse practitioners. Um, and the whole team looks at the entire picture of the patient and determines what's going to be best for that patient in that circumstance um, with the particular social circumstance that the patient has. Is there transportation? Does she have family? So all of these factors factor into um, the current standard of care. In patients who have advanced cancer, they may have uh, pain and may need a combination of pain medications, anti-inflammatories. Um, if you add an antidepressant, it's kind of like the three legs of the pain stool, and that helps in the management of pain. It may be that radiation will be an important part of the pain control. So it's very, very important that the patient speaks to her team, whether it's the gynecologic oncologist, whether it's her nurse practitioner, her physician's assistant, or any of the other members of the healthcare team to tell them exactly what symptoms and what problems she's having, and we can fix it. The difference between now and when I first started training is we have amazing medications for all of the symptoms that a patient has, um, from uh, hot flashes to um, painful intercourse to severe back pain uh, to nausea. The, the medications that are available um, are, are really endless, and if you, I tell my patients that if they just tell me or my team what's the problem, we can find a solution that will meet their needs. When the treatments are over, then the patient goes into a um, what we call a survival mode and, and enters the world of the cancer survivors, uh, which is a great world to be in. But it has also problems in being a cancer survivor. So you may have painful intercourse, you may have painful urination, you may have um, diarrhea. And again, all of these symptoms can be managed if we know about them. So it's very important that there's an open communication between the patient and her um, healthcare team. So uh, I think that covers pretty much um, the areas that uh, I wanted to cover. And I think Dr. Einstein is going to pick up from here. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Ronowitz. Very comprehensive and uh, very informative. Thank you. And our next speaker is Dr. Einstein. Uh, Dr. Einstein um, is um, Professor and Vice Chair for Research, Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology and Women's Health, Albert Einstein College of Medicine and Montefiore Medical Center. And Dr. Einstein is going to address new treatment approaches, targeted treatment, the important role of clinical trials, nutritional concerns and tips, quality of life concerns. It's my pleasure now to turn the program over to Dr. Einstein. Thank you very much, Dr. Messner, and uh, thank you, Dr. Ronowitz, for that uh, overview of some of the background information. 
I, I want to start by supplementing um, some of the information that Dr. Runnels had said um, and focusing on what is the real target um, that we focus on with regards to screening and treatment of cervical cancer, and that, that's this very, very common virus called human papillomavirus. As Dr. Ronowitz had mentioned earlier, human papillomavirus is incredibly common. Up to 80% of people have been exposed to human papillomavirus at some point in time in their life. However, very few people ever get cervical cancer. And these papillomaviruses are really, really common. In fact, there are papillomavirus species that, that are in almost every mammal. And in fact, we've identified papillomaviruses in fossils that predate dinosaurs. I say that because people ask me all the time, oh gosh, I, 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 I just found out I have HPV. And nobody ever told me before, well, only recently have we been able to really have a regular test that we could do in a lab to really test for this incredibly common virus. So, you know, some women, especially women who have been in menopause or women who are perimenopausal, we, we might not have had that testing available for them 10, 15 years ago, but what we've realized is just how ubiquitous this virus is. Now, there are many cancer-causing types, and these are the, the cancer-causing types that we try to look for when we're actually trying to screen and prevent cervical cancer. And there's nothing that holds more true with Ben Franklin saying of an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure than with cervical cancer because we could do a lot with preventing cervical cancer with many of these improvements, just as what Dr. Ronowitz had said earlier, if used routinely of uh, some of the screening and prevention strategies, we could largely prevent many cervical cancer in the future. And that's hopeful for our next generation and hopeful, as Dr. Ronowitz said, this is a major global problem and it's a huge morbidity for the world. And it would be really, really good if within the next one or two generations we could eliminate this cancer. And we have the tools potentially to do that. Getting back to this HPV thing, when we actually look hard enough for HPV and cervical cancer, we find it in nearly every cervical cancer. In fact, this, the association between HPV and cervical cancer is about 10 times higher than that between smoking and lung cancer. There is no fact that's more of a fact epidemiologically than this association in the medical field. <clears throat> so we target this with a test that's incredibly sensitive. We could hone in on these diagnoses, and we hone in on these high-risk types, particularly also two types that are kind of bad actors in this, uh, type 16 and 18. 16, actually, as of 2006, is on the known human carcinogen list. And we know that these two types can actually lead to worsening a disease much further and much quicker than with some of the other even high-risk types, and we focus on that. And as Dr. Ronowitz had mentioned, we have, through uh, years of clinical trials and years of development, there are actually some very, very good vaccines that we now routinely recommend in all 11 and 12-year-old girls that actually target those two bad types. Um, interestingly, and for for the you know for the, the audience that's out there, this is the, we're 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 making the next generation vaccine already. The next generation vaccine will include five additional cancer-causing types, with the idea that we're going to primarily be able to prevent about 92% of cervical cancers in the 11 and 12-year-olds that are now getting vaccinated. And I say that because, especially for our audience, it's really important to let your family friends, neighbors know that vaccination is incredibly important. And, and part of the problem is that we have kind of low vaccine rates compared to the rest of the developed areas of the world. And people have come up with some ideas that there might be some controversy. Quite frankly, in the scientific world, there is no controversy about these vaccines. In fact, there has been, if anything, a decrease in the limitations and barriers to getting these. Um, and so this is something that's widely recommended by all scientific stakeholders. 
getting back to, uh, so we have the prevention aspects that are primarily done with, uh, with screening and also, uh, I'm sorry, that are primarily done with vaccination and secondarily done with screening. So we can actually use this HPV to I really identify the people that are most at risk. And in fact, some of you might have heard that earlier this year, we now have one of the tests that actually we could actually use that instead of starting with a pap test, and then in some people maybe doing an HPV test, we could start with the more sensitive test which is an HPV test. And for those that actually have an abnormality on that HPV test, then we go to that PAP testing. Um, and this might actually be able to hone us in onto those that actually potentially need more of a workup and more of a diagnostic workup, like Dr. Wonowitz was saying, something called colposcopy. So with these improvements and with routine use and as per some guidelines that are very, very well established in the United States and the rest of the developed areas of the world, we could really largely prevent cervical cancer. For those who unfortunately have suffered with cervical cancer and been diagnosed with it, we unfortunately have not been able to cure all cervical cancer. And so until we cure, people like Dr. Ronowitz, myself, we are, we are all about trying to figure out ways to move new therapies forward. And the way we do this is through clinical trials. This is a process by which we study new drugs and new therapies. And it's a very regimented process. And it's done with a lot of oversight and a lot of care and concern for patient safety because some of these drugs, we don't really know really how to use them very well. And we don't want to throw out the baby with the bathwater with these drugs. We want to be able to learn how to use them so we can move the science forward so we could cure all people with cervical cancer. Um, what is the interesting things is that because of the burden of disease has gone down considerably, which we're very, very happy about, it's kind of hard to move these trials along quickly. And so what has happened in the developed areas of the world is we harmonize all the clinical trials. So the, the, many of the trials that, that are leading to how we actually deliver the therapies that Dr. Ronowitz was mentioning earlier um, are, that are done in the United States are done kind of the same way in Canada, kind of the same way in Western Europe, Australia, New Zealand, and certain parts of Africa. So we've harmonized all these clinical trials in order to answer these questions faster so we could get the answers to our patients as quickly as possible. Also, we have new kind of study designs that help improve the chances that if something is working, more people that are on those studies will actually get what is working. And if something's not working, less people that are on that study will be exposed to those toxicities. And these innovative study designs answer the question of whether a drug is working or not. This, these sort of clinical trials has actually led to a major advance this year of a targeted treatment um, that um, was actually recently uh, approved by the FDA for the treatment of cervical cancer, and that this, that's this drug called bevacizumab. Um, this is now an approved treatment based on actually some, one of these trials that actually was sponsored by the National Cancer Institute. This was a very, very large trial that was done, and it showed uh, almost a, more than a tripling of the rate of effect on the people that actually received this bevacizumab. And because of the unbelievable response rate, and we haven't seen a drug that has had that sort of response rate in cervical cancer in, in more than 20 years, um, the FDA kind of fast-tracked this to an approval process. Um, and this is great for our patients because many of these targeted therapies are unfortunately a little bit on the pricey side. And some of the payers have, have kind of limited on paying for some of these things. But with an FDA approval and with uh, recommendations by what are our guidelines um, in the scientific world, um, this is something that can be provided um, even for people that might not have the means. And so we're very happy about this, and we're very happy to be able to give these sort of targeted therapies, such as bevacizumab.
bevacizumab to our patients. And this is ultimately going to help, um, help them achieve the cure, which is what we all want. Um, I've been asked to talk a little bit about some of the nutritional concerns and tips, and, and this doesn't just go for cervical cancer, this goes for really all cancer, and good nutrition is really important for all cancer patients, and we spend a lot of time counseling our patients about healthy eating habits that they can have during their cancer treatments. The cancer itself, as well as for sure the cancer treatments, may in and of itself affect nutrition. They could affect the absorption of the important nutrients that we get in our diet. They can affect how how hungry we are and how we want to eat. And anorexia and cachexia, when we don't have a lot of protein in our diet, are very, very common causes of malnutrition in cancer patients. Um, and cancer and cancer treatments themselves might actually affect the taste, the smell, the ability to eat or absorb these sort of nutrients, and, and these malnutrition can lead can cause a patient to be weak or tired or unable to fight infections. And I, I always tell my patients that it's really you know we got to think of food as like medicine. It's a very very important part of treating and fighting cancers. Having enough protein, having enough calories is important not only for fighting the cancer but for fighting off infections that can sometimes happen as a result of the therapies for fighting to heal after some of the therapies and having enough energy to actually make it through therapy. And we like to hope that people can live well while on their therapies, okay, so that they're not kind of hung up in a hospital. We, most of our therapies are done in an outpatient setting, and they actually live, they work, and we want them to have that sort of energy to do that. And having a, having a good nutrition is incredibly important for that. And it's also important to treat any weight loss that's caused by cancer and its treatment. And we have to aggressively do that because they have to, because patients have to have that, that fight from the, the nutrition that they're getting in their diet in order to fight that cancer. Some of the quality of life concerns that we have um, is, is something that um, the National Cancer Institute has really embraced recently. And this is an important part of what we would consider to be cancer care and delivery. We like to think that we're providing a blanket of care for our patients. And it's important for us to not only get the patient through this therapy, but to think about some of the survivorship issues. Many cancer survivors have told us that when they've felt like they've had a lot of information or support during their illness. Once treatment has stopped, they enter a whole new world, one that they have like a lot of new questions about, you know, what to do, what, what things are going to happen. People get very nervous coming back to see myself and Dr. Ronowitz and doctors like ourselves because they worry about, you know, what's going to happen. And, and, and we feel that it's important to inform patients of every, all the options and what potentially can happen even in the follow-up treatments. And, and it's important for patients to share a common feeling with your health care providers and the reactions that you might have had after the treatment has ended. You know, cancer survivorship is a, is a great world to enter. And, it's in, and, and include anyone who's been diagnosed with cancer at the time of diagnosis for the rest of his or her life. Um, family members and friends and caregivers are also part, part of this experience. And so it's, it's really important that that whole support is there not only for the patient, but support is there for the caregivers as well. And while cancer is a major event for all who are diagnosed, it, it really brings us a chance, to, a chance for, for, for growth. And as hard as treatment can be, many cancer survivors tell me tell my colleagues that the experience has led them to make important changes in their lives. Some of the cancers that we deal with, particularly cancers in patients who might be obese or um, in patients who smoke, it leads to important life changes that could help them for the rest of their life. And, and, they, and they take time to kind of smell the roses. Um, and it's really important to do that as part of, um, as part of the survivorship. 
I was also asked to talk a little bit about palliative care, although although I think our next speaker might talk a little bit about that. And this is a specialized medical care for people with serious illnesses. It's provided by a team of doctors and nurses and other health professionals that are working together with the patient and particularly their family and caregivers. And this team works with the patient to provide um, pain management and other symptom relief, understanding what the patient's wishes and goals are, and explain treatment options so the patient can choose what's best. This is a, a proven approach, and, and we have taken a much more aggressive approach to trying to bring in some of the palliative care aspects of treatment in early in cancer care, um, even while someone might be receiving chemotherapy. Um, and this focus, while you know, the palliative care focus on treating the disease while also ensuring the best possible quality of life for the patient. I'm going to stop there and hopefully have a soft handoff to our next speaker who's going to continue with some of these conversations. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Einstein. Um, that was very incredibly uh, helpful and informative to people. And also, it was wonderful that you used the concept of blanket of care, and you highlighted um, the caregiver's role as well. So these are all very important things to keep in mind and um, as we move forward. And our next speaker is um, Allison Nielsen. Allison is an oncology social worker, and she's the Women's Cancer Program Coordinator at Cancer Care. And um, Ms. Nielsen is going to address the um, psychosocial, free psychosocial services that Cancer Care offers, as well as the role of support groups. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to Ms. Nielsen. Thank you, Dr. Messner. It's so wonderful to be with you all in the program today. As an oncology social worker, I work with many women who are diagnosed with cervical cancer as well as their loved ones. And I'd like to begin by speaking about the importance of creating a support network when you're diagnosed with cancer and how cancer care can be a part of that network. There are many ways we can help. Cancer Care is a national nonprofit organization that provides free professional support services to anyone affected by cancer. And I think that anyone is very important because that includes the patients as well as the caregivers who are also often struggling with a diagnosis. Cancer Care programs include individual counseling, available face-to-face -face in the New York area and over the telephone nationally support groups, which are available face-to-face -face in New York City and over the telephone or online nationwide, education about resources and navigating the healthcare system, practical help, and some limited financial assistance. All of our services are provided by licensed master's level oncology social workers and are completely free of charge. Oncology social workers are trained in how a diagnosis of cancer affects a person and her family and friends. They are experienced in helping cancer patients and their loved ones tackle the problems that accompany the disease, such as financial demands, physical changes, social adjustment, and psychological impact. Adjusting to and coping with the diagnosis is an important part of the healing process. As you probably know, cancer affects the whole person and the entire family. It can often be confusing and overwhelming. The good news is that you do not have to walk this path alone. Asking for help by joining a support group or by contacting a social worker for counseling is a sign of strength. Joining a support group is a way to connect with others in a similar situation where you can share thoughts, feelings, information, and ideas about cancer. And individual counseling provides a space, a space that is just yours to voice any concerns and process your emotions. These connections help lessen the isolation that many people with cancer experience. Feeling well emotionally can help you deal better with the diagnosis and treatment. 
At this time, Cancer Care offers a support group over the telephone for women with any type of cancer. There is also an online support group available for women with any form of gynecological cancer, including cervical cancer. And women with cancer in the New York tri-state area can attend our face-to-face in-person support groups. We also offer specialized face-to-face groups for young adults with cancer ages 18 through 40 and women who speak Spanish. If you are interested in any of Cancer Care Services, please call our HOPE line at 1-800-813-HOPE, that's 4673, to speak with one of our oncology social workers. You may also wish to visit us online at www.cancercare.org. Our comprehensive website is a place to find a lot of additional information on your cancer diagnosis and the treatment you need to receive. As we have learned a lot from today's update on cervical cancer, you might need some guidance in in digesting it all. Our social workers can help you understand what it means for you and your family. Um, The final message is to know that you're not alone and Cancer Care Services are here to help you through. Thank you for the opportunity to speak with you today. Oh, thank you so much, Allison. That was uh, really a wonderful way to help people understand many of the services that they can access at for free from cancer care and and the and this level of support that they can expect. Thank you so much. And now we have time for questions. We actually have a lot of time for questions, and I'm going to ask Stephanie to explain to all of you how to queue up for questions. And I'm going to try to take as many of your questions as possible. If for some reason we don't get to your question or you think of a question in a day or two, you'll just call us at 1-800-813-HOPE. And I'll repeat that number again toward the end of the call. But let's see how many of your questions we can take now. Uh, Stephanie? Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. If you'd like to ask a question, please press star then 1 on your touchtone telephone. If your question has been answered and you wish to remove yourself from the queue, you may press the pound key. Those of you on the web may submit questions by clicking Ask a Question. Our first question comes from Lynn D. Your line is open. Hi. Um, if you had cervical cancer 20 years ago with one of the pathogenic HPV viruses, and then you, in a subsequent pap smear, the virus is back again, what is the implication of that? Thank you for that question, Lynn. And uh, Dr. Einstein, can you address that? Sure, sure. So in our post-treatment management strategies, we actually are now looking at HPV. And what we've learned is that each event is a a bit of a different event with regards to any of this testing that's done after treatment. And with the presence of of HPV, quite frankly, after treatment, HPV generally doesn't go away. It kind of lays in a kind of a subclinical state. But by the the mere fact that it is kind of stuck around, it's really important to continue to get regular screening. Um, In fact, the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology Oncology recommends continued screening upwards of 20, if not longer, years after treatment for cervical cancer because of the potential for recurrence. Now, that being said, when someone is 20 years out of their treatment, it's unlikely that recurrence will happen. That being said, we, we, we still need to continue to monitor because we can never say never in this business. We have a question in front of our online participants. Um, I am nervous about the effectiveness of the cervical cancer vaccine as it is relatively new. Would you recommend all young women and girls to get it, or are there possible adverse side effects? Um, 
Dr. Einstein, could you address that? Yes, absolutely. So um, this vaccine is actually, just if I could clarify, it's not really new. We've been studying this vaccine actually since the early 90s. Um, the safety and, uh, and effectiveness of this vaccine is actually more documented than many of the vaccines that we have available today. Over 45 million doses have been administered on, and, and the, on the northern hemisphere and probably an additional um, 15 million or so doses have been developed and have been administered in low and middle income countries. And what we've realized is that not only is it incredibly safe, um, but it's even um, more effective than we originally thought it was going to be. And again, all the, all the 51 stakeholding organizations that are involved in the guidelines for this vaccine recommends routine recommendation of vaccination, just as routine as MMR, as Tdap, and other vaccines um, in that 11 and 12 year old age range. I think some of the differences that you hear um, out there is as opposed to some of those other vaccines, uh, this vaccine is not mandated um, other than in Virginia, in Washington, D.C., in the United States. That being said, in places like the U.K., 12-year-olds um, get it in the school. Um, there's no parental consent that's involved. So there are some policy changes in other areas of the world that are different than the United States. And comparatively to these other areas of the, of the world, the United States has relatively dismal rates of vaccination. And this is something that we're trying to figure out how to overcome with some of those barriers because, again, we're trying to prevent cervical cancer before it starts. Awesome, thank you. And um, another one of our online participants has a question. Dr. Ronowitz, um, I had a hysterectomy several years ago and still have my cervix, but have since stopped testing. Is there any reason to continue these tests? Dr. Ronowitz? So I don't know the age, but I think uh, an observation is very important to emphasize how important screening is and should continue. Uh, we have found that in one of the big HMO organizations, it was reported that women were seen after the age of 60 for hypertension, diabetes. So they were in the healthcare system, but they weren't getting pap smears. And they ended up to be the unscreened women, and they had the highest incidence of cervical cancer. So in general, you continue to screen uh, until you have at least three normal pap smears within a period of time, say over a 10-year period of time. And there's no upper limit of age, um, but many, much of the data is very uh, what we call soft, where there isn't a lot of data in the uh, older woman, and that would be over the age of 65, 70. So I would continue to get screened, and the screening, as Dr. Einstein has pointed out, um, may be an HPV screen uh, rather than a cytology. And if it's HPV and you're HPV negative, you can increase your screening interval. So I think the message here is it's such an easy thing to do. I would do it, and especially if you're being seen in the healthcare system for some other problem. Excellent. So actually, there was another question that came in. I'm 65 years old and have, it in, have received pap smears in the past. Do I need to continue this testing? So you would say that they should. Is that correct? So or? I think they should. 
unless they've had three negative pap smears. When we're seeing uh, cancer in the older, you know, over 60 years of age, and I, I hesitate when I say older because I'm in that group and I hate to say <laughs> older, but in the older woman, over 60, um, the, the women that are getting cervical cancer in that group have become the unscreened. So if you've had three negative screens within a 10-year period and you're at, say, 65, 70, you probably can stop. And if we move to HPV screening and you're negative, um, I, I would feel very reassured to stop. And um, another online question from one of our participants um, for Dr. Einstein. I read that women younger than 30 should not get an HPV test. Is there a reason for this recommendation? So um, that's a great question. And, and what we've learned um, when, when we actually started doing a lot of testing of women in research studies, we learned just how ubiquitous this is. And particularly in young women, upwards of 30 to 40 percent of women under the age of 30 have an active HPV infection. But most of those infections are spurious and they go away. The younger a woman is, the better her immune system works, the better she's able to keep that HPV under control. So by, but when we do HPV testing, potentially for a primary screen or HPV testing in women under the age of 30, we're picking up a lot of positives that are really not clinically relevant. So the recommendation based on what are very, very good prospective studies, and in fact, the last one was a large cohort study that was done in Kaiser Permanente, Northern California, of 1.4 million women that were followed over a 10-year period of time. HPV testing wasn't helpful in, 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 in determining which clinical path that we go to for determining which people are at highest risk for cervical cancer screening. And this is a large prospective study, and we're never going to see a validation cohort that size. And so the recommendation is a pretty firm and a pretty strong recommendation, almost as strong as we could get in medicine, to say that we should not be doing HPV testing in women under the age of 30. And we also have a question from one of our um, health departments. We have a number of participants from the health department on the call. So the question is, the HPV vaccine is given in three doses. If a child gets the first two but over a year has passed and hasn't had the third shot yet, is there a time limit or is it okay to go now? So. Um, Dr. Einstein, do you want to address yeah, that? Yeah, I'm happy to take that. So that's an excellent question. This is this is like the, you know, the real world setting versus the clinical trial setting. And you know, sometimes based on timing, based on doctors' visits, people miss a dose. So the current federal advisory com uh, committee on immunization practices recommendation, and that's the that's the committee that actually recommends all vaccines, including the HPV vaccine. And they take into account not just the clinical trial data, but they take into account logistics, epidemiology, acceptability and a number of other things in order to do it. And what they've realized is that, you know, that the timing in the United States works differently than the timing in other places. And sometimes the timing can be off. But if it's off, based on the data that we have so far, and this is actually very good data, um, we don't restart the series. We don't redo the series. We don't redo anything. We just give the third dose. Um, it might not be as effective. However, what we've also learned is that, um, there's been a couple of recent trials, one done in British Columbia and one that actually was a sub-cohort in a very large cohort of girls that were vaccinated in Costa Rica. And what both of them found is that maybe two doses might be enough for some people um, versus three doses. And, and in fact, some public health officials in countries outside the United States have suggested that we are only going to be doing two doses instead of three doses. That has not come under discussion as of yet in much of the developed areas of the world, but it does appear – 
that maybe after two doses, most are protected. This is really quite cutting-edge information we're all getting. This is wonderful, actually. And we have another question. Um, so I'm on the pill. Does this increase my risk of cervical cancer? Uh, Dr. Runowitz, do you want to address that? So there's um, many years of study on oral contraceptive, um, and through the years it's been reported to be associated with an increased risk of cervical cancer. There have been a collaborative analysis from something like 24 or 25 epidemiological studies that have found the, in, the risk of invasive cancer increased with increasing duration of use as defined as greater than five years. Um, so it could be that the hormonal milieu, the hormones are uh, changing the, the um, vagina and making it sort of a more uh, friendly place for HPV. Or it's also possible that women on oral contraceptives may increase their number of partners and increase their exposure to HPV. So I think it's complicated. Um, and I think the bottom line is oral contraceptives are excellent methods of birth control, but you need to be screened for cervical cancer when you're on the oral contraceptive. And then once again, you shouldn't smoke because there's also danger of smoking and oral contraceptives. And as I noted before, smoking is associated with an increased risk of squamous cell cervical cancer. Thank you. And um, another question, will treatment for cervical abnormalities affect my future childbearing? Dr. Einstein, can you address that? So that's a good question. Most of the treatments that we use for, um, for um, what we would consider to be precancerous lesions of the cervix are, are generally um, surgical, where we're uh, shaving uh, some of these abnormal cells off. Now, when we think about the whole length of the uterine cervix, just what we see in the vagina is actually, shall we say, like the tip of the iceberg. The real strength of the cervix is actually in the pelvis. So the whole cervical length is anywhere between four and six centimeters. What we're doing when we do one of these excisional procedures is really shaving off maybe three to five millimeters of tissue. And then it kind of grows in from the bottom up. So by, by the time we actually see patients coming back to us, um, it, it almost looks like nothing really ever happened. That being said, to the question that, that, was, um, that was mentioned, what we've learned it, over, the, over, over with large retrospective studies, again, we're not going to like randomize patients to treatment versus no treatment because we know that the, the precancerous state needs treatment. That's why we screen people so we can prevent cervical cancer by doing this sort of treatment. But what we've learned is each of these procedures do subject someone to the potential risk of preterm birth, not, not getting pregnant. It's not an issue of getting pregnant. It's an issue of delivering before 37 weeks. Um, and that absolute risk is somewhere along the lines of anywhere between 1% to 2% per procedure. Now, one would say, well, geez, that's not a lot. And that's true. It's not a lot. However, 500,000 of these procedures are done in the United States every year. One to 2% of that is five to 10,000. We could probably attribute about five to 10,000 preterm births uh, directly related to this sort of procedures. And I say that because it's important, actually, when someone does decide to get pregnant, that they should probably think about getting what we call preconception counseling with a high-risk doctor, and that they should be followed for cervical length checks early on and get early prenatal care. These are all important recommendations that have been given by the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology. And But unfortunately, until we actually have a better way of treating this, um, this is what we do. We do these excisional procedures. Some of the more innovative innovative treatments 
that we're testing right now, and there's actually some late phase clinical trials going on right now for what we call therapeutic vaccines. So where we give a shot to target and boost the immune system to go after that HPV. And some of them seem to be working in some of the clinical trials. So we're hoping in five to 10 years that we might have a different mousetrap for treating this so we could actually minimize the chance that someone has to go through this excisional procedure because these excisional procedures are particularly common um, in young women because the rate of high-grade disease, high-grade dysplasia is much more common in 25 to 30-year-olds than any other age range. So these are generally women that are young. Many of them have not had kids yet. Many of them are, many women in the United States particularly are delaying childbearing. So these are really important issues, and these are reasons why we actually need to have some medical therapies for this, not just surgery. Thank you. Thank you. These are really excellent questions. And um, the next one is, my surgical screening test came back as inadequate. Why do I have to wait three months before repeating the test? Dr. Ronowitz, could you address that? Yes. And, and I'd also like to add to uh, Dr. Einstein's excellent discussion. Um, with the HPV vaccine, if we can get it rolled out and get it, its use more, get it more widely used, we will have less procedures done on the cervix uh, because we'll have less HPV infections, so we'll have more normal pap smears. So I think that getting the, the education out about the HPV vaccine is, is really important because it will have effects well beyond just protecting the cervix from HPV, but also have you know, implications with respect to prematurity. And now I forgot what you asked me. <laughs> oh, so the, um uh, the question was, um, if you've had uh, uh, my cervical screening test came back as inadequate, why do I have to wait three months before repeating the test? So there's a, a school of thought that once you've taken um, the spatula, which is the, one of the tools that we use in doing a pap smear, that you scrape off the superficial layers and that you uh, have to allow them to heal back up, otherwise you're going to miss the abnormal cells. And there are other, other schools of thought that with modern, more modern cytologic methods, uh, you really don't need to wait. So I don't think that the three months is a bad idea if the patient is going to come back. The problem of um, patients who may not come back, I would rather do a repeat pap sooner than that rather than lose the patient. But if a patient is reliable, you know she's going to come back, three months is perfectly okay. And remember, it takes years to go from um, an infection with HPV to an invasive cancer. So there's plenty of time. Thank you. And another question, I was just diagnosed and am a young adult. What are my fertility options? Uh, Dr. Einstein, could you address that? So um, it's an excellent question, and, and, and uh, gynecologic oncologists are particularly keenly aware that we want to try to do everything we can to maintain fertility. So for early, early cancers, um, there has been the development of a, of a procedure that actually can actually uh, lead to um, um, uh, continued fertility, and this is something called a radical trachelectomy. And the idea behind this procedure is that we're doing, uh, we're taking out what we need to take out with just the cervix, but we're leaving the uterus, okay, and we actually 
we attach the uterus to the top of the vagina, and we also put a special sort of tape mechanism at the bottom of the uterus to actually help maintain any future pregnancies. And this has actually been found to be a very safe and effective procedure, um, and it does lead to some uh, pregnancies um, later in life. And that being said, it's also a procedure that is only done at specialized centers, and it's only done by gynecologic oncologists, and I would recommend um, to our audience member that has asked that question that they actually seek one of those centers that actually has um, has done a number of these sort of procedures um, and see if um, the cancer that she has has um, is something that might be amenable to this procedure because we actually have very specific size dimensions that um, that make this procedure a, a doable procedure. And another from one of our online participants who have really been amazing today in, in asking questions. I'm in a same-sex relationship. Do I need cervical screening? Dr. Ronowitz, can you address that? So if they, they're in the same sex, they shouldn't need it. However, having said that, there is a literature um, in the LBGT literature that shows that, that w women can have abnormal pap smears However, when you, deal, when you delve into it, they usually have had some heterosexual uh, contact. But it has to get, the HPV has to get into the vagina and to the cervix. So with the same sex, it's unusual that that's going to happen between two women. Dr. Einstein, do you want to comment as well? Um, uh, Dr. Ronis has, has very good points. That being said, I think that, um, I mean, well, well, as part of the management guidelines, and one, one particular sect of individuals that is at higher risk is actually our, our LGBT population as well as uh, uh, transgender population. They're at risk for, for cervical cancer because, again, HPV is, is incredibly ubi ubiquitous. So the, uh, the thinking is that there might have been some heterosexual exposures by one of the partners, and it's, it's not necessarily about the type of, uh, of sex or the type of intercourse, but it's really all about that HPV thing. And if somebody's got it, it, they are potentially at risk for getting cervical cancer, and they need continued screening, and that is still recommended. Um, that being said, if there, as Dr. Ronotz had mentioned, if there is, um, you know, less of a question about um, about what had happened before the relationship, then then you know, then the chances of getting some sort of cervical cancer are incredibly rare, if if at all. Thank you. And another question: I'm not sexually active. Do I still need cervical screening? Dr. Einstein, could you address that? So, you know, one thing that's a little confusing and something that we have had a tough time grappling with in the HPV world is there's all these, you know, huge studies in like, in like nuns and in virgins that have shown these relatively high cervical cancer rates for that exact question. They're like, oh, I haven't really been exposed, so why do I need this sort of screening? And, and part of it is because of our lack of understanding of how the transmission of HPV is. We certainly know that penetrative intercourse will Will, will potentially result in, in an HPV infection, but there is some aspects of skin-to-skin -skin contact that might also result in HPV infection. Most of those are just are spurious. What we've also realized is there's auto-inoculation, so somebody might have an exposure and then auto-inoculate themselves to HPV. And so, um, you know, right now, until we actually have a better idea about these, what are very, very hard and very tricky ways to actually figure out what the actual transmission rates are, the recommendation is even is an age-based 
age-based recommendation, not just in it, not just a sexual experience-based recommendation. So it's an age-based recommendation, and women of should start having Paps at age 21. And the way we do Paps um, should be is is routinely recommended, even if they haven't had what they would consider sexual exposure. And there are some few other questions. Um, so, what is the relationship between HPV and other cancers? Dr. Runowitz, can you address that? So probably the HPV expert on this phone call is Dr. Eidstein. And that's a very good question because, you know, this is, this, is a, this is a virus that is ubiquitous in the anogenital tract. So almost every um, external cancer of the anogenital tract is, is related to HPV, not to the degree that is related in cervical cancer. About 70 to 80% of vulvar and vaginal cancers are related to HPV. Most anal cancers, anal, not rectal cancers or colorectal cancers, anal cancers, squamous cell cancers of the anus are related to HPV. Interestingly, there are certain types of head and neck cancers that are associated with HPV, but we know the biggest driver of, of head and neck cancers are smoking and drinking. Um, having actually HPV actually puts somebody, um, so if someone has an HPV associated head and neck cancer there, actually um, they have a better chance of actually having a, 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 a treatment effect um, than someone who's HPV negative, but we don't really completely understand the natural history of HPV in the head and neck tract. Um, HPV is ubiquitous in the body. It's not just in the anogenital tract. It's in the oropharynx. It's actually been identified in the GI tract and breast tissue. And almost everywhere, it's, the virus is just kind of hanging out there. It's not doing anything there, but it's kind of hanging out there. So we don't really understand the relevance of HPV outside of the anogenital tract. And um, so um, this question is, I tested positive for HPV. How will that affect my relationship with my partner? Dr. Einstein again. Yeah, uh, I mean, this is a really, really common question um, that comes from partners of women who are now the, the, uh, the understanding and knowledge of someone's HPV status is much more ubiquitous. Almost everyone knows what their HPV status is. Um, their partner has been exposed. One could almost guarantee that. Um, however, doing testing in males is not recommended for a number of reasons. Number one, I don't have a pill or a shot to make that go away. So a positive test is not going to help me really figure out what to really do about it. Cancers of the penis are incredibly rare um, and, and, and rare in immunocompetent males. And so we don't really screen for HPV-associated cancers in routine male screening. And also the testing, when we actually talk about what the testing is, males don't really want to go for it. This isn't just like a gonorrhea test or a chlamydia test. Uh, to actually do a real HPV test on males, we actually use fine sandpaper. It feels similar to leather. We sandpaper all aspects of the penis, the shaft, the glands, the scrotum, and then we do a, a moist swab, and that's that's what an HPV test is in males. And I just mentioned that to many of our males, and I don't think they want that test. <laughs> well, I have to say this has been an extraordinary call. Um, Dr. Einstein and Dr. Ronowitz um, and Ms. Nielsen, um, you're amazing, and I have to say our audience, our participants today have been extraordinary in asking such really incredible questions that are on everyone's mind, and you in this audience ask those questions, and our speakers address them. So thank you so much. And um, I want to remind all of you this is a one-hour program, and that when we plan a program like this, we know that you have many needs that go far beyond the one hour. And so I do want to remind all of you that you can certainly contact Cancer Care at 1-800-813-HOPE um, and with any other questions you might have. Also, 
Um, I also would like to mention again, as Allison said, we don't want anyone to feel you're alone when this call ends. There's no question or concern that you have that you can't ask one of our staff here. We are here to help you. And that is really important in a program like this where you basically may have more questions that you're going to think of, or you may have needs for some of our services, um, all the free psychosocial support and counseling, the online groups, the financial assistance, so um, and the more workshops and more publications, all those kinds of things. So you please do call us at 1-800-813-HOPE. Um, or visit our website at www.cancercare.org. Again, I want to thank you all for your participation today, and I want to wish you all a very fine day. Thank you all. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop. You may now disconnect, and everyone have a wonderful day.